I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Polkadot Parachain auctions are going on now. Parallel Finance offers the biggest rewards to maximize your contributions on your favorite Polkadot projects crowd loan. Parallel offers the best yield and liquidity for your DOT contributions. Learn more at Parallel and get maximum rewards on your Polkadot crowd loan contributions by visiting Parallel.fi in your browser now. That's Parallel.fi in your browser right now. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, our week in review with writer Scott Cipollino. That's coming up on the Decrypt Daily. Good morning, everyone. Today is Friday, November 19th, 2021. We have a longer show today. I talked to Scott. We waffle on for quite some time. So I just want to hurry up and get into those crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. And I'm recording this at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $57,700, down 2.5% in 24. Ethereum's up 1% at $4,205. Binance Coin's in the number 3 spot at $575, up 2.2%. Tether's in the number 4 spot, and Solana's number 5 at $208, up 2%. Running off the top 10, we have Cardano, XRP, Polkadot, USDC, and Dogecoin. Total market cap, we're at $2.55 trillion, a BTC dominance of 42.5, and an F dominance of 19.4. And now without further ado, Scott Cipollino, writer for Decrypt, and myself, talk this week's top news. My man, Scott Cipollino. How you doing? Welcome back to the show, sir. I'm good, Matthew. How you doing? Excellent, excellent. This is our week in review, and we had an interesting week. I wouldn't say we had extremely big news, but we did have important news. And I, I we'll start just talking about some of the important news. Uh, let's go from what I consider the, I don't know, the least important to the most important. So the least important is uh, Crypto.com. Crypto.com is changing the name of Staples Arena over in Los Angeles, where the Lakers and the Clippers play. And it's now going to be called the Crypto.com Arena. And it was a $700 million 20-year deal, which seems like a lot. It's only $35 million a year. I don't know if that's like uh, the going rate, but we know, do know that FTX Arena was named FTX Arena for $135 million. Scott, what, I just want your opinion on, on that. You're, you love American sports. You're, you're, you're British, but you love American sports. You love football. You're probably following the NBA. What's going on, my friend? How do you feel about this? Yeah, well, I mean, you meant mentioning that it's uh, probably, relatively speaking, maybe one of the, the lesser important stories, but there are many people, I think, that would disagree with, with that perspective. I think it's a pretty big story insofar as we've seen this big pivot um, from crypto exchanges, and obviously FTX has sort of led the way here, uh, but Coinbase too, um, with sports marketing. That that space has really exploded in recent months. Um, and this is the latest step in, in what has been a long line of, of crypto companies really pivoting to sports to try and get their name out there. Uh, crypto.com, I think it has a great a great name. I mean, that's, you know, for, for somebody breaking into the industry, it's 
it signals immediately what it is and what you do. I remember um, listening to Sam Bankman-Fried re recently saying that if somebody's jumping into crypto for the first time, they may not have necessarily heard of FTX. Um, and a lot of that might just simply be to do with the name FTX. It doesn't necessarily give away what the company is doing. Crypto.com, obviously, it jumps right off the bat. Um, I think it's a, it, you know, it's a big deal. Um, one thing that I found kind of curious um, or <laughs> interesting or funny, rather, was um, Russell Westbrook. Uh, he was asked after the, I can't remember what the game was, but the Lakers just finished the game. I'm assuming I saw the clip on Instagram and a, a reporter had asked him, what did he think about the Staples Center being renamed to the to the crypto arena? And he didn't seem to know. <laughs> uh, he was like, what? And he seemed a little bit confused. So um, I think that it's, it's clearly a, a big deal for the industry and also for crypto.com as a company that there's going to be a lot of brand exposure out there. Again, not just for the company, but for the industry. And this is just, like I said, it's following on from a long line of, of efforts from Coinbase and also FTX primarily to, to sort of like break into sports. You know, I think that we're messing up. We keep calling it the Staples Arena. I think it's called the Staples Center, actually. So, Staples Center, oh, big part of that. <laughs> and that's both of our, our, our faults. And somebody in LA is going to be listening to this going, you twits. But <laughs> but I did watch that interview. And actually, you know, uh, then I watched uh, the Daily Show with Trevor Noah after it. And, and Trevor actually put it this way. He's like, this is a generational thing. It's been the Staples Center for 22 years. And, yeah. you know, 22, 20 years after this, you're going to have a whole generation of people calling crypto.com arena and they're not going to know anything different. And you're just going to have old people shaking their fists at the sky, mad that they're changing the name again. I, just real quick, uh, what, how do you think it would look if, if like this is a new industry, right? It's kind of like if Netscape came out and named it the Netscape Arena. And then 20 years later, we're just like, it's like the Netscape Arena. Like, what happens to this company? What happens if crypto.com goes tits up or the crypto space just falls falls out? Yeah, well, it would look very good, would it? Um, I mean, that, there's, there's no two ways around that. It's important to point out, like you've just mentioned, it was a, it, it, it's a very nascent industry. But there's a lot of faith in that nascent industry becoming a mainstay in, in popular culture and in, and in general finance more, more broadly. Uh, one thing, again, that I keep going back to FTX, I know we're talking about crypto.com here, but um, when, when Sam was actually asked, how is FTX paying for the 19-year contract that they had with, with the Miami Heat for their stadium? And he sort of said in a bit of like a mic drop moment that they didn't need the last 18 years of that deal in order to actually pay for the naming rights. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's sort of, you know, reflective of the case that it's been a really positive year generally for crypto companies. There's been a lot of new interest, both institutional and retail into the industry. And I think the companies have, have obviously benefited from that. Um, but again, you know, you know, I, every time I come on this podcast, I warn against speculation. I don't think it's, it's, it's safe to, to speculate whether or not crypto.com will be here or the crypto industry will even be here in the next 10, 15 years. That's a long time in, in, in life. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say. You know, one thing I really like about when you come on the show is that you're, you're not afraid of throwing me on the bus. If I say something like, oh, this is the least <laughs> important story, you're just like, no, well, I think it's not. I think people would disagree with you. And, and, and I, I appreciate that. Remember, this is my show. But uh, <laughs> gotta be nice to me. Joking, just joking, man. Throw me on the bus. I, I, I fucking love it. Crypto.com, big news this week. Uh, we also had a couple other things that really happened. One was the bipartisan infrastructure framework, which is now bipartisan infrastructure law. Joe Biden mm -hmm. signed it the other day. As soon as he signed it, the crypto market just the bottom fell out. And we lost, you know, we went from like $66,000 Bitcoin to 50. $56,000 Bitcoin. We're around 57000 at the time of recording this. I have no clue. I've, I've thrown my 
theories out there to the listeners throughout the week. The listeners has, have written in and said, you're full of crap, Matthew, and or gave me other ideas or agreed with me. Um, what do you think happened? Well, I think it's it fairly clear. To, I mean, there's, al- there's always this discussion about, you know, we have to be careful between causation and correlation, right? But I think it's fair to say there was a relationship between developments with the infrastructure bill and crypto prices, as there has been that relationship throughout the year. Uh, the infrastructure bill has routinely caused a lot of controversy in the crypto industry. Um, a lot of folks say that it's imposing near impossible requirements on on certain crypto actors like miners to provide data to the IRS, which they they feel that they can't can't really fulfill those requirements. So it's obviously a really unpopular bill in the crypto industry. But you know, spanning out a little bit, this is a this is a huge victory for President Biden. I think that needs to be said. His approval ratings, I think, are a bit of an all-time low recently, and this is a big legislative win for him and his administration. But, you know, it's it's something that's not popular with the crypto industry. That is the case, and it will likely continue to be the case unless there was some sort of drastic change in direction where these crypto actors don't have to provide data that they believe is impossible to provide. Um, but again, going back to the, you know, the issue of crypto prices, we've seen those tank whenever the infrastructure bill has has gone through its, you know, a, a step relative to its journey or, or, or gained some momentum. Someone's come out and said something positive about the bill. And we've seen that controversy sort of reflected in crypto prices. And I think that the last week has been no different. Mr. Scott, I don't like to speculate, Chibalina. <laughs> I want you to speculate, actually. And so this is what I asked. And I'm going to re- re- re-ask this because the listeners know my opinion. And this is an opportunity for the show to have somebody else in a different opinion. And what... Mm-hmm. Was it in the bill that tanked the price? Was it the tax uh, tax provisions for the broker tax? I, I know, Scott, I know you're uncomfortable sure. with this, but please take a breath. And, I'll try. Uh, <laughs> and if it wasn't the broker's bill, broker's deal, uh, then what was it? And what, why would the money? Why? I guess what we're trying, I'm trying to ask is why would money flow out of the crypto space once it passed? Well, I think it's 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 bigger than than the question of tax. I think it's it's really about the. You know, not to get too sort of drastic here, but it's a, it's potentially about like the strength and survival and growth of the crypto industry in the United States. If it is such that crypto actors like miners and node operators and, and what have you can't provide and even exchanges can't provide the information that they're being asked for, then a lot of those companies might stand to leave the United States. And that's obviously, a, a you know, in terms of speculating, if there's anything that's that's more bearish than that for the future of crypto in North America. I, I, I don't really, or in the United States more specifically, I don't quite know what it is. And I think it just, you know, potentially causes a lot of investors to panic, potentially retail investors that are maybe a little bit playing a shorter game than retail, than invest than institutional investors. And they maybe just be selling their assets on, on, on anxiety that's fueled by the infrastructure bill. And, and that would be that. It might be as simple as that, really. And do you think these are sophisticated investors? Because the way I look at this is like once the bill is passed, there's a lot of little things that you have to go through to get these things, these funds out there, these projects to start, the IRS to start thinking about brokerage, whatever, whatever. And like, yes, there's an overall sentiment, but it's going to take, you know, a good, you know, 12 months to 18 months to even roll out what's in this bill to actually start even feeling effects in the markets yeah. or in uh, society or in people's lives uh, to pull out the money so quickly is very premature, especially since we're in the in the middle of a bull cycle. It doesn't seem educated as an investor, or maybe it is educated as an investor. And, you know, some people like me just don't understand the depths of this. But uh, what, I, what it looks like to me is just very panicky, very finicky, very um, 
new money in the crypto space, not knowing what to do when news hits. What do you think about that statement? Yeah, I think that's that's very reasonable. I think a lot of a lot of regular investors don't actually know what they're doing when they jump into crypto. Um, I think that's probably it. I think that that's reflected in what we we often see, not just with the infrastructure bill, but even stories that come out of China repeatedly where the Chinese government will reiterate their position on the crypto industry, where they've had a longstanding ban on crypto trading. This year, they've really hit crypto mining very hard. That story has revived itself three or four times this year without necessarily delivering new information. The government or or representatives of the government have just, um, shall we say, they've reiterated their position and it's caused a bit of a run on crypto prices. That to me, it depends obviously, of course, on what your your investment intentions are. Are Are you purchasing cryptocurrencies for a long game and trying to, you know, actually see some positive financial return five to 10 years from now? If that's what you're doing, then obviously... This this is quite short-sighted, but it depends really on investor intentions at the end of the day. You mentioned a key word in this conversation, the IRS, and you just wrote an article about IRS and who is using crypto and how much of the people who are being seized for criminal activities are have crypto on their, I guess, their portfolio or the balance sheet, if you like. Criminal balance sheet. Uh, tell us about your article. Yeah, so uh, this is just a report that I was reading this morning, spent most of the morning reading this 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 report that was published by the IRS. Um, and basically what it found was that 93% of criminal investigation seizures um, in the IRS, or from the IRS, I should say, involve cryptocurrencies. Um, that's a pretty surprising number, um, or rather, you know, a pretty bold number. Uh, in total, we're talking about three and a half billion dollars worth of cryptocurrencies that have been seized by this by this criminal investigations unit. It's a specific team here that we're talking about. And really, I just think it's 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 an interesting time for this story to come out because we've seen throughout the course of this year a lot of high profile headlines that sort of sit between the intersection of crypto and crime. We've seen far right extremists raising millions of dollars worth of crypto. We've seen Russian intelligence-backed companies funding election meddling in the United States via crypto. And we've even seen law enforcement attempts in Sweden to crack privacy coins to solve a missing persons case. Like, I'm, I'm quite interested in the, the relationship between crypto and crime. It's been a really interesting year to be on that sort of, that sort of um, topic. Uh, and this is just a really well-timed story to write about, I think, because it, it, it also comes off of the back of a lot of things that we've seen the current US administration say about crypto. Uh, earlier in the year, they've they uh, Biden said that, or rather not Biden specifically, but the Justice Department announced that they were going to start treating ransomware and crypto ransomware as well specifically um, towards like a sort of similar priority level as, as terrorism. And that happened amid some very high profile ransomware attacks like the Colonial Pipeline, for, for one example. And then there was also a, and I'm rambling a little bit here, but there's a lot that's just coming to my mind. There was a a ransomware team that had been set up by the administration with the express purpose of tracking illicit cryptocurrency payments. Um, so this has become a, a, a real sort of issue for national security in the United States, not just an issue of financial crime, but those things as well as like, if you can imagine a Venn diagram, financial crime and national security sometimes go hand in hand. But, um, you know, the, the, these are just figures that that will sort of lend a lot of momentum to that argument that cryptocurrencies are actually, despite their benefits, that they provide a lot of or present a lot of risks when it comes to national security in the United States. Is a percentage the best way to look at who has cryptocurrencies in terms of crime? I mean, like, for example, like 100% of all criminals have socks. How many of the criminals have US dollars? I'm just wondering, like, if there's no comparison, is percentage the best way to use put that out there? 
Um, it, well, it, I suppose it depends on, on what point you're fundamentally trying to make. The reason why I gravitated to that number was because I just thought it was very high. If, if the article was, you know, carried a headline that said 27% of all criminal investigations, seizures involve cryptocurrencies, it maybe wouldn't be so compelling. The fact that it was 93, I thought was quite compelling. Um, and again, it comes down to, you know, people's what I always arrive at is people's sort of value system as as it pertains to cryptocurrencies. Are cryptocurrencies worth the problems that they may carry with them? Because you sincerely believe that they offer a serious alternative to the current financial status quo. If so, then perhaps these are these are issues that you can stomach. If not, then no. If not, then these are really serious issues that you think, well, we're just adding to an already problematic financial um, system that we have, which we know is rife with financial crime, money launderers, crooks and corruption or what have you. So one of the things that I always see on Twitter whenever I write an article like this, uh, people will reply and say, well, what about the US dollar? Well, of course, the US dollar is rife with crime as well. It's the most widely used currency on the planet. Um, that, that, that doesn't take away from the point that I would make, which is that cryptocurrencies also facilitate crime. And, and when that happens and when there's data that, that sort of illustrates that, I, I definitely think it's it's worth noting. Have you noticed a pattern in what kind of crime and what kind of cryptos uh, were being were most associated? Was it more of a privacy sort of thing? Was it Bitcoin or and it was it sort of like money laundering crimes or were there things more so more crimes like the one that you mentioned? I think it was kidnapping. Um, yeah, that, yeah, well, that that was a that was quite a quite a unique story to be honest. Just that that was essentially there's a uh, a lady that went missing in the summer of 2018, if I'm not mistaken, in Sweden. And law enforcement in the country are trying to, were trying to break into Monero um, as a as a means of trying to solve the case. Um, privacy coins, as well, sort of featured in. Uh, we're going back a, a couple of months now, but when when Andrew Anglin, who was the uh, the founder of the Daily Stormer, which is a neo-Nazi publication, it was discovered that he had received five million dollars worth of Bitcoin from January 2017. And then eventually law enforcement started to sort of hit hard on, on, on those transactions. And he called on his followers to pivot to Monero again. Um, so privacy coins, they definitely feature. In terms of the, the crimes that we're discussing, uh, those two things sort of are you know, fairly, I wouldn't say unique in that they're the only instances where, where they may happen, but they sort of sit in their own silos. We're talking about funding uh, extremism and a person's uh, and a missing person's case. Those two things are fairly unique. Um, more broadly, and something that's also in the IRS report here, is that cryptocurrencies are often used in cybercrime, which makes sense, naturally. Um, we're talking scams, we're talking ransomware. And on the subject of scams, we see, we see those risks pretty much every day being discussed by financial regulators or by other watchdogs that, that sort of sit alongside regulators, where they they're chiefly concerned about consumer protection. And I mean, we, we hear it all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a story as old as time that somebody is out there on the internet and they're trying to part with an innocent person's money by just you know opening up a fake website, what have you. And those things are very common. Last topic today. And it's probably the biggest topic that is being discussed right now. Maybe <laughs> it's just because it's recent. It's the most recent. And that's the Constitution Dow. And really brief, everyone, what happened with this is about a week ago, maybe a little bit more right now, a group of people created Dow to fundraise to buy a copy, an original copy of the Constitution, the US Constitution on auction from Sotheby's. And first of all, the original copy of the Constitution 
is kept in the U.S. as a National Archives Museum. But there were original copies of the Constitution made. Eleven exist, uh, nine are, are taken for, if you will. Uh, but there's one now that could go to the highest bidder. Well, it was started at $25 million, and apparently the, the bidding stopped at, if I'm correct, $41 million. Somebody walked away with the Constitution. It wasn't the Dow that uh, was created to collectively own the Constitution and have, be, have it be part of a public good. Uh, and that was the, uh, the ethos of creating this, this Dow to buy the Constitution. Is to, it should be a public good, and the public should own it, and it should be owned in the form of a Dow. Um, there has been some confusion of who actually owned it at the time of closing the auction. Uh, and the Constitution Dow thought they won it, but then they didn't win it. But and, and I'm not too sure what happened since then. Scott, do you know, can you fill me in on this story? Yeah, well, I think that's just um, in terms of the confusion, which I think is in a, in, a, in a sense the most, in a way, the most interesting part of the story. I mean, that's 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 maybe not true. Obviously, that you know that the the formation of the Dow in the first place and 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 the amount of um, momentum that it gained as well is is also something to, to to discuss. But in terms of the confusion, that's just part and parcel, I think, of auctions where we see we've seen it before, um, where people aren't necessarily sure who's bidding for who. And as time starts to tick by, we don't necessarily know what the top bid is. You know, as seconds tick away, so that confusion isn't necessarily surprising. That's happened before. Well, one thing that I think is kind of interesting is just we see um, constitute with the story of Constitution Dow, we see how, you know, one of these decentralized autonomous organizations has sort of just like, um, you know, we can see how, how fluid they are and how, how, how quick it can be, at least in, 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 in ideal terms, to set up one of these communities and actually do something potentially really cool. Like we, we were, you were talking just earlier that there's, there's only 11 copies of the U.S. Constitution that exist. Um, most of them exist in private hands, including this one still. Um, but I think it's just a really cool story to see how, how a DAO, which we've seen dominating headlines recently here, here and there, um, we can see how, how they provide people with a really interesting new way to mobilize themselves. And I think that fundamentally, despite the fact that the, the purchase was not made and, and at the end of the day, you know, it ended the way that folks necessarily didn't want it to end. I think that's the, that's the coolest story. The, ability for people to quickly and in a very agile way sort of build out this massive community and, and garner a lot of interest for something that that's probably the most powerful angle here. I'm also wondering this, the, the kind of like the, the down the road of this DAO. And I think that you mentioned it here in what you were saying is that what can DAOs do now? We know that a DAO is a legal entity in say Wyoming. It's uh, an, an LLC. Now, you don't have to issue tokens per se, and you could have like tokenized and it could be a security. I mean, there's different ways to set up DAOs. But what do you think a DAO can do? Do you think that we are moving toward the future of DAOs being created to maybe take take over companies, hostile takeovers, just buying out either their stocks or buying into private companies? Or do we see that a DAO can be formed to name the next uh, sports arena, the, you know, the collective of crypto bros arena? <laughs> you know, so it seems as though the potential of DAOs have now moved into an area that there should be serious consideration of what they can accomplish. Yeah, well, I think in theory, at the very least, that's true. Um, I think that it's important to say that, that you know, the DAO space, for want of a better term, is still very young. But that, but that doesn't mean to say that their potential is not very high. We might just have to wait a little bit of time to see that potential actually 
actualized. But I think it's, you know, if this story shows us anything, it, it, it shows us that there is real power behind the idea of a decentralized autonomous organization where people can get together, like I said, very quickly uh, with a lot of agility, sort of nimbly, really generate some interest and some, some moving power on whatever the, the issue at hand might be, whatever the issue in question is. Um, and that's sort of the lesson to take away from this, really. I, I think that you can then apply that theory to all various walks of life and all various questions and issues. And you can see, at least in theory, how a DAO can make sense and how it can actually make some waves. But again, it's still early days and we'll see how that sort of progresses. But it's 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 certainly exciting and, and really interesting to watch. Last question about this DAO um, really quick. And I was just wondering, do you think that the government should get ahead of it? And the reason why I say this is because we did see the mobilization of $40 million. And if we do start applying this to, say, companies or politicians or uh, any kind of special interest that a group of people on the internet rallies up and pulls a lot of money, can influence companies, brands, politics, uh, even even uh, global security if you put the money in the right you know areas. Do you think that this is something that we should get ahead of because now that you see that it is mobilizing large sums of capital based off of, um, I guess, contemporary or public interest and uh, what is popular at the time? I don't, I don't think it's necessarily a case of getting ahead of DAOs. I think it's it's more, I think it's fair to say that, you know, if a DAO, as we saw with 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 the story of Constitution DAO, we're talking about a an auction with with Sotheby's, but in, in any in any case, that money that is if it's ever mobilized for an actual material good or, or purpose, then those rules that, that you're alluding to are likely already in place. So for example, with the story of Constitution DAO, uh, Sotheby's has KYC uh, requirements, know your customer requirements. And the, the DAO had to set up an account in partnership with FTX US in order to satisfy those requirements. And I think that that is what we'll see more often than not, whenever there is a DAO that's mobilized and, and money has been generated in order to you know make a, a you know to, to to finance a political goal of some kind or whatever, all those rules are already in place. We already govern the way that you know rightly all these things can be improved, but we already have laws and regulations in place when it comes to campaign financing, when it comes to political donations or any other kind of use case for money. And DAOs will run into those 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 laws just like any other practice. Scott Chabellino, thank you very much for coming on the show today and talking our week of news. Yep. Thanks very much, Matthew. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Deemer. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, leave us a comment, and check out DeemerForCongress.com. That's D-I-E-M-E-R for Congress.com. And donate to our campaign. And until tomorrow, weekend update, happy hodling, everyone. <laughs>